if it's done uh, in, in consideration of all of the things that we we teach, things that have been taught for thousands of years, a certain way of looking at the world that makes it uh, or speaks to its its um, that which I should say is beyond the mind and the eye, beyond what meets the eye and the mind, which is the self and its source. So unfettered, if you will, by mind and body to live in the self. And in the context of that, make a union with our source, that is bhakti. There's an interesting um, point that just comes to mind as I mentioned this before we go into the questions, it's a point that I've addressed before, but it's interesting and, and worth addressing this. It's often misunderstood. When we speak about the I or the self, then um, there's two senses of the self. There is, to use the word ego, there's a metaphysical ego and there's a psychological ego to complicate things but um, what I mean by that is that we're all familiar to some extent with the psychological ego and efforts to, to deal with it, to improve it, to shrink it, um, to make it more healthy. Uh, ego means identities or sense of I. Mm -hmm. um, and then we come in touch with teachings from the East, for example, uh, uh, where in this, this I is, well, here today and gone tomorrow. And, um, and in our school, in the school of Bhakti, we get introduced to the idea that there is a, that beyond the psychological ego or identity, there is a metaphysical ego or identity. To put it simply, there's an I am, which would be the metaphysical, uh, well, there's an I am, and then there's an I am this or an I am that. This and that changes. We can't rely on it. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow, but I am con continues through all the thises and that's that we identify ourselves with. So there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an identification with the metaphysical ego that results that I want to say the metaphysical physical, metaphysical ego is the is the self identifying with matter and the psychological ego then is the is is a secondary condition as a result of that identification. So if I think that I'm confined within time and space, that I am the body-mind complex, which is changing uh, constantly and so forth, um, then in the context of that false I, if you will, that I has a psychology. So just to address, so if we if we want to address the metaphysical problem of the identification of the self with matter, metaphysical eye, it behooves us to have the psychological eye in a good condition, to be in a strong position, to begin to deconstruct itself by in the context of. Uh, bringing out the fact that I am and that that transcends I am this or that. And in the context of I am, all that I can be in the trans psychological and emotional uh, status when all of my ambitions, desires, will, and so on and so forth is all centered on, on the Godhead the form of God, the qualities of God, the beauty of God. I can derive psychology, if you will, from that. This is what we call ecstasy. 
that takes a shape. Frame has a form, love has a form. And so that's the full trans-psychological sense of self. The metaphysical false ego is the identification with matter. And that, and then in the context of that, that identification, there's a psychological, psychological ego that arises. Now, some people not understanding this, try to attack the psychological ego in the name of deconstructing it as the spiritual uh, traditions speak about. But that's uh, problematic. For example, you could say, well, you have attachments. True. So just give them all up. Well, that's may put you in a very weak uh, position, in a difficult position to, 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 to function. Uh, and just some artificial type of adjustment like that is not going to undo the knot, what Schopenhauer called the world knot. That was his, that's the English translation of his German for what he referred to as the, as the metaphysical false ego. Many, many Western philosophers don't understand that he was speaking of this uh, Indian or Vedanta, Eastern philosophical um, perspective. To untie that knot, hmm? you have to be in a strong position to untie that knot through the medium of spiritual practices, which don't constitute merely an adjustment of one's psychology. Hmm? You say, problem is you're attached to take everything away from you, give everything up. Well, <laughs> that's not going to undo your your ego, metaphysical ego, very, very um, cool. Uh, but put you in a weakened psychological condition. You have to instead have yourself in a strong psychological position. That would be sattvic, to be in balance, materially speaking. You then apply yourself to trans rational practices, sadhana, yoga, meditation, kirtan. These are not, uh, these, are, these are processes that are not irrational, but they're not intellectual. Hmm? They're not psychological under themselves. They're transrational. So they have the power to, to deconstruct that metaphysical ego at its core, to loosen the, the knot. Hmm? And as it's loosened, then the beauty of the self independent of the mind and the body starts to shine out. So to speak of the, the beauty of oneself in relation to one's source and the subsequent reaction that we call uh, in, in school of bhakti, we call it rasa. So the very, this is very, with some experience of that as the knot unties, then we can let go, for example. In terms of, for example, attachment. So it's so we have we, it's good to have a strong um, and healthy um, psychology, or to be in balance, so that you can apply yourself to trans psychological, trans rational practices, have strength to pursue sadhana that will unravel the knot, give you more experience on the other side. And so on. So, it was uh, uh, this is something that, uh, that I'm, I'm talking about. Dewar Chang has been doing successfully throughout his life, um, and uh, now he's at a point to uh, take advantage of that. And um, we hope the best for him. But there's some of the thoughts that have been on my mind besides his immediate situation. I tied the two together a little bit. Um, but with that, um, let's go ahead and take the questions. Any questions? You have any questions from Wadagan? Uh, yes. We've been reading Srimad Bhagavatam, but I'm going, but she pointed out a question about that. I don't know if you asked it, but yeah, I don't think you did. Um, there's promises of such promises at the end of certain chapters, as instance, Strova Maharaj or Rudra and uh, others as well, that after studying this chapter, uh, you reach 
your final destination at the end of his life. But we keep your Shrimad Bhagavatam as a, as a gift at the full moon, you'll, you'll reach perfection. Uh, I understand reach perfection perhaps, but what about when he promises things like at the end of his life, when we know that we have to actually purify ourselves from karma from our yeah, these are, it's often at the end of a stotram or a set of prayers or a chapter, there'll be a verse that speaks about the fruit of reciting it, the results of reciting it. And, uh, and sometimes those fruits can be, seem exaggerated. That seems to be what you're addressing. Now, in the sacred texts of Hindus, there are some texts that take, um, that, that do exaggerate for effect. So, for example, some texts seek to drive us in the right, right direction through fear. Not the best motive, but it may work for some. And then some try to drive us in the direction of our perfection through a prospect of what, what you might get out of it. In this, you know, in the here and now, so to speak. What you might avoid, and what you might acquire. So these are these are basic how material life works. We try to avoid suffering and we try to uh, acquire happiness, usually through things, through the acquisition of things. Thoughts about things, wish we had them, hope we don't lose them, so on and so forth. So some texts they employ, or they, they look at the condition of the self in this world, and they take advantage of it to speak in such a way as to motivate people in the right direction. Now, in the school of bhakti, uh, uttam bhakti, shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, we don't, uh, our texts don't um, employ those type of motives or press, if you will, emotionally on either of those sides to motivate us for the most part. Um, but rather um, present clearly a, a much higher goal that uh, distant as it may be, it's, 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 it's worth attaining. And even though it may take, will take time, it takes a lot of practice and so on and so forth. So um, um, that said, you will find statements in the sacred text of our school that do say, with regard to that goal, such a high thing, this is kind of your question. Well, if you read this, you will, you will attain it. If you give this book to someone on the free moon, you will attain it. So you're asking, well, is this an exaggeration? Because we know the goal is very high and it's, it's difficult to attain, it's attainable. It's our optimum, so to speak, position. We're we intended for, so to speak, we exist to attain it, um, but uh, it, it takes some time. So your question is, if I understand it correctly, are the sacred texts exaggerating here? Well, I think that um, the answer to that is no, but that there are examples of that happening. You can find, you can find this in, in Rupa Goswami's Bhakti where he gives all these angas or limbs of the body of bhakti. Chanting is a limb. You can, you can engage in bhakti mystically, meditating, hearing, uh, serving the deity and rituals in the, in, the, in the temple, so on and so forth. And uh, so just, you know, once chanting or once doing this, you can attain uh, things that you're not attaining by once chanting. <laughs> so is an exaggeration. No, the point is, it's been seen and usually examples are given also. For example, in that text, but this happened to this person. So the potential is there in, in those acts. And and there have evidence to that effect. And therefore, well, pay attention. This could happen to you. It probably won't. Uh, and it depends on your condition. So let's say, for example, um, 
you have a lot of material desires and attachments, but you could become attracted nonetheless to, to an ideal that, uh, that transcends such attachments and so forth and requires letting, letting them go. Well, if bhakti comes into your life, into your heart, to decorate it and give you a transcendent identity that's beyond time and space in which to interact with, with, with the Godhead, with Krishna. Well, that's like a, let's say, to give an example, a uh, interior decorator comes into your house and you said, well, no, go ahead, just decorate the place. I have confidence in you. So she says, okay, throw that out, throw that out, throw that out, throw that. And you would say, hey, wait, I thought you were going to decorate the place. I like that. And I'm going to throw that out. So first things have to be getting gotten rid of. And then the decorating can take place. Or in the context of the text, get that off the wall and I put this up. So Bhakti sweeps also. It said that Krishna enters the heart in the form of his name like a sweeper. There's all kinds of things in the heart. Multi-corporations have set up their lights, bright lights in our heart. Come by me, find me, find me, and have this, have that. And uh, it's constantly squawking and trying to capture our attention. So the name of Krishna enters the heart, and he sets up a little shop, and he's selling brooms. And you think, well, broom, you know. I could have this, I could have, you're selling brooms. No, they're magic brooms, take one. And then broom sweeps, sweeps. And what is the self? It's now covered by a mountain of material desires and ignorance, just a little bit comes out. And the light is so bright that all of the corporate lights go out in comparison, they look like darkness. What is my prospect? Keep sweeping, sweeping. Sweeping is, is, is one side. The sweeping is taking place, the, the lights are going out, the dust is being removed, and so forth. And the other side, the self is coming out and its prospect in relation to its source. And it's so bright, as they say. And just as a little bit comes out, a little experience of the self in the context of bhakti, the waves of ecstasy. Even a, even, even a neophyte, a novice can experience chanting. Just all the philosophy, which we try to convince you to follow this path, it's good and so forth, but this is way more compelling. Just a little experience solidify me there. I'll learn some philosophy along the way to help me deal with my mind and its, its tendency to think otherwise and, and whatnot, but the experience is very, very powerful. So... And at any rate, these angas, these limbs of bhakti, they're very powerful. And if someone, for example, has a very pure heart, let's take, for example, one of the principal, the, the principal speaker of the, of the Bhagavatam, the book you referred to, his name is Sukadev. So the, the story of the Bhagavatam is that the sage um, from his very beginning of his age left home into the forest. He had no material desire. So he had, there was nothing to cleanse out of his heart, but he didn't have bhakti as an ingress into his life to acquaint him with his source. He knew what he was not, none of the names and forms of this world that are here today and gone tomorrow. So he had no attraction to that. But was there anything positive if you have negative numbers, well, zero is positive in relation to negative numbers. It's a big relief. If I have a lot of debt, karmic debt, and it's all absolved, whew, that could be shanti, 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 peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. So he was like that. All the karmic debt that was completely paid, done, finished, ah, he had nothing to do. Peaceful. That's like zero in relation to negative numbers. It has a positive context. But his father had someone teach him, the great Vyas. And that was the poetry of the Bhagavatam, which speaks about positive numbers in this analogy I'm giving, up to a thousand and million and eight, let's say. 
So he sent some poems from the Bhagavatam about Krishna and the Leela's movement and transcendence. He was in the still, stillness of transcendence. But there's actually there's movement in transcendence. That's what love is called. Love requires some movement. Right? If I'm going to stop moving in relation to things that are false, I'm going to stand still. That could be good. Because if I keep chasing after things that disappear after I run all that way to grab them, well, that's a recipe for disappointment, right? So that's knowledge. Gyan retires karma. Knowledge require, retires action in this world. Because our action is all in relation to things that don't endure in pursuit of enduring happiness. I mean, <laughs> that's just madness. So knowledge is to stop that pursuit. Easier said than done, but one can be peaceful then because from attachment, that is the womb from which suffering is born. I like a thing, but I can't keep it. The more I like it, the more troublesome it, it is ultimately when it shows its full face of, well, I'm not real. <laughs> I don't endure. I know I look like a Prince Charming at first, but well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you should have known ahead of time. So, so here he was in this condition, Sukadev. He had gyan. So all the karma was required. He had real knowledge. So all action in relation to things that don't endure, which is ignorance, was stopped and he was peaceful. He was, he was peaceful, but he wasn't dancing. Right? He was peaceful, sitting, sitting. And there's also movement in transcendence. It may look like the movement in karma, like when we speak about the leelas of Krishna, but they're of another nature. This is, this is movement in transcendence, celebration of fullness. So his father knew about this, and he sent some poems into the forest with a woodcutter who was cutting wood for the winter. And he said, chant these poems when you're in the forest. Maybe my son will hear them. His heart is completely pure. So they will have a full effect on him. Hmm? Instead of having a preliminary effect, the first cleansing out, getting rid of the rug and this and that, and all the cleaning the house out, as the, if that, the bhakti doesn't have to do that, hmm? well, then her main work will be the primary focus of decorating hmm? and giving the self that's now freed from the limitations of the body and the mind, a spiritual body, a spiritual mind, a trans-psychological, trans-psychological emotions in a, what we call the world of Leela to move in, in relation to, uh, to the Godhead. And that is Krishna. We say Krishna is God because he has nothing to do. He only plays. So if someone is only playing, then they must be all powerful because it takes power to play. You have to have some money. You have to have some time off. So he's only playing all the other gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon. They have something to do. Krishna has nothing to do. Only playing. So power, if you will, um, majesty, overt displays of power. This is a sub subset of the intimacy that one can have with the god in, in the form of Krishna. So at any rate, Point being, in relation to your question, if you're like Sukadev and there's nothing to cleanse out, then you hear that story, then you'll get that kind of effect. Okay. So it happens. And this is the, what this, these texts are saying is, they may give, often give an example, not always, but often give an example. And so that, that's most so society, these practices have great power. So it should inspire faith in you to take up the practices. Seriously, does that help? Long answer. But what else? Another question? Yes. Okay.
and then follow up on the last question. Go ahead. Um, and uh, yesterday gave the poems to the woodcutter. Um, would that mean that it doesn't matter who recites it, but the Bhagavatam itself will transfer into the heart of a pure? Did you hear the question? The question is. The question is that Vyas, the father of Subhadeva, gave the poems of the Bhagavatam to the woodcutter, and the woodcutter was going and singing them. The question is, well, you know, the woodcutter is just like a woodcutter. So does it matter who's carrying the, the message, if you will? Uh, does that have any bearing or doesn't matter? Hmm? Pretty good question, right? So two things. One thing is that, well, the poems or the name of Krishna, for example, has an, in its own inherent power. That's a fact. We say it should be given by a qualified person, a guru, right? Does that mean that it will have no effect if it's given by just by, by someone else by accident or somewhere you, you, you hear the name of Krishna or something, let's say. Somebody says, Harry Krishna. It doesn't look too hairy to me. Mm -hmm. So is that any different then than the guru giving the name to Sudhir Rear? And so, yeah, there's a difference. Um, but will it have absolutely no effect? Not necessarily. We would say it would have some effect. Will it have its full effect? It had the effect in due course of bringing one to inquire about it and hear properly, but learn about it, receive the blessing to, to chant the name and so on and so forth. So, so now in the case, in the, in the story in which I told, the woodcutter is giving the, is, is carrying this poems, right? They were poems about Krishna, his leelas and so forth. In, in particular, the, with their one verse, oh, what is it? Verse, oh, vakiyam, sanakala kutam. It's a story of Krishna's liberating Putana, who tried to slay him in his infancy by smearing poison on her breast and dressing like a, like a nursemaid. Pretty insidious, pretty, well, what do they make headlines? Someone did that, right? So, he sucked her breast and gave her mukti, liberation, a special kind of mukti. So the poem says, oh, who in the right mind would take shelter of anybody other than Krishna? He was approached in this way, and the person approached got this result. The result, the approach and the result seem diametrically opposed. So he's just only generous. She was dressed like a devotee in order to get into the circle. So she's dressed like a devotee. I'll accept her as a devotee. He in this case, he ignored her motive. To some extent. So anyway, this was the verse, one of the verses. The point is this now. Yes, the woodcutter was carrying the verse and he had no understanding of the verse, but he was carrying the verse based on the intention of Vyas So Vyas used the woodcutter as a vehicle to convey his own realization about the verses to Sukadev. And so when he heard the verses, he followed the woodcutter back to the ashram of Vyas. So that's one thing. The other thing, as I mentioned, well, it depends who you are and what your condition is. Now, if, if your condition is that you're uh, very much, let's say, caught up in the world and so on and so forth, then even if you hear from a very elevated person, the effects are going to be minimal to begin with. Now, on the other hand, by contrast, if you are a very spiritually otherwise evolved person like Sukadev was, and you hear from someone that 
doesn't know very much, you may draw more out of it than he or she has who's bearing the message. It's possible. That's the contrast, you follow? So there's some relativity to it, but but basically we should we should of course we should hear from qualified persons that we're going to get the most um, benefit thereby. Does that help? Okay, another question. Arjun? Yeah, um, there's a question in the chat that I'll have to read. This is from Shamdas. In your book of Sri Shikshastakam, I have read that as far as one's prayers are concerned, it is until the stage of Asakti that one's worshipable deity becomes established in one's heart. In earlier stages, the prayers are more directed to Paramatma. Then in the book, you mentioned that in the initial stages, it is most advisable to pray to Gurni Thai, who is Vishwambar, the maintainer of the universes and Krishna himself, the source of all avatars. We also know that the worship of Gurni Thai and Dasya Bhakti engenders Raj Prem. What does it mean to worship Nitai Gaur and Dasya Bhakti? And what are the prayers that you recommend that can grant the greatest advancement in the stage of Anardhanavriti towards Shishi Gornitai? It's a lot in that. Yeah. Well, a couple of things uh, there come to mind. Um, uh, what Shandas is referring to is the idea that in our tradition, there's a gradual progress to different stages. So first we meet some devotees uh, and uh, as a result of their association, hearing about their tradition, uh, seeing in their person, their experiences, it becomes contagious and it creates some faith in us, in their ideal. So then we take that association more seriously and in the context of that association, one such devotee stands out to us in a, in a compelling way as a person through his or her example and precepts uh, causes to feel that, that I, can, I can gain the most by connecting with this particular sadhu. So that's how we find our guru. Then the guru, he or she gives us initiation and some uh, practices and so on and so forth. That's the next stage. And then in that stage, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's kind of a, a learning curve. So there's some ups and downs. Like I say, you wanted to climb to the top of the Himalayas, then you have to go through the foothills. So you're going to go, oh, hey, I'm going down here. But in the broader perspective, even when you're going down, as you can see with my hand moving, you're going up. So the guru knows there are going to be some ups and downs here. They're real catastrophic for, for those practitioners, but he or she's standing back and seeing the bigger picture and telling us not to worry too much about that. And, um, and there's a learning curve. And gradually, at any rate, the course, to change analogy here, from a narrow, from a, from a windy road becomes a straight road. And it's straight but it's not narrow, it's very broad. And so rules and regulations become realizations and the breadth of what you're entering into uh, starts to become apparent. So naturally it, it makes you very humble. Like, what, what am I in touch with here? I thought I had it all captured in my head, what it was and I'm seeing it's as I get beyond my head, it's way bigger than that. And it's real gray rather than black and white, but it's comforting at the same time. And it's very comforting at the same time. So this is a stage where the practice becomes mishta, fixed rather than anishta, unsteady. From there, you come to the stage where the practices, from the practices themselves, there's a taste, a constant taste, a relishing, bliss. And, and what, Shamdas is referring to this in that stage, the Shaitanya Mahaprabhu was talking about it in his poetry, then um, 
one loses all taste for anything material and only has a taste for bhakti itself. And so there's a form of the God that presides, so to speak, over the world, the world soul, if you will. Uh, witnessing, if you will, either the, the, the trials and tribulations of each individual soul and not getting in the way of, of the material nature's system of reward and punishment or karma. You did that, this is what you get back. Um, so if you no longer have material desires, you only have desire for bhakti, then the Lord of your heart, in this case would be his case would be Krishna, replaces, so to speak, the Lord who presides over a heart that has material desires. Okay. Now that said, in bhakti, it's not that we have to wait till the stage of, of Ruchi to pray to Krishna and we should pay to play to the Paramatma, Paramatma, because we have material desires. We also have Krishna in our life in the form of his name. We should pray to him. We should now it's hard to pray to Krishna because well he's wrapped in the arms of Radha. He forgot that he's God. That's Krishna. <laughs> Power of her bhakti is such that he doesn't even he doesn't even know he's God anymore. He's in an existential crisis. People call me God. I don't know what they're talking about. Very charming. So how are we going to get through to him? Well, he had his omniscience is there, even in that condition, although it's in the background. So it can hear our prayers. My emphasis in that section, my comment on that, those poems is that is that the, 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 the measure of one's sincerity in the practice has to be considerable, considerable to tap in to Krishna's omniscience and get his attention given his condition. Right. And but but it doesn't mean that prior to that stage we should pray to the Paramatma. The Paramatma should be displaced at least in our mind from the beginning. And Krishna should be placed in our heart, who's the source of the Paramatma. But in the stage of Ruchi is realized. He's there. And I, I know I, I I have nothing to do with this world. Now, what I've suggested in the book, as you mentioned, Shamdas, is that, well, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself in a very magnanimous form, coming in the form of a devotee of himself to exemplify the means to attain him, accompanied by Param, Krishna and Ram, Gore and Nityananda together, it's, it's said. So, um, so it is it's easy for us then to appeal to Krishna in that condition. He's the same Krishna who's wrapped in the embrace of Radha, but now he's in this world trying to figure out her embrace and in the context of that, showing the way uh, to enter into that realm. So naturally we turn our attention towards, towards him and pray. Now you're asking what prayers should I pray to Gore and Nityananda that will help one most overcome this stage that's up with its ups and downs. I would say to you that the chanting of Hare Krishna itself, the mantra is, is, is a prayer. And this is the one that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has recommended that uh, to chant without any, with full attention, without any offense. This is very uh, powerful. That is, that was the, his own method to the madness of the ecstasy that he entered into, hmm. Krishna Sankirtan. Now, uh, that said, there are many practitioners over the centuries who have embraced that uh, method of Kirtan, and they have penned many prayers and expressed their feelings and so on and so forth. So to be acquainted with them in general is very, very helpful. They have shared their hearts in their in their progress, much to learn from them. So I can't single out any particular prayer, but in our particular lineage, the prayers of Narottam Thakur, the prayers of Bhakti Vinod, many prayers in Bengali, they have been underscored, and um, we sing them, often put them to song, and 
course, as we progress, then those, those pairs may be more, you're asking in the stage of an Artanavritti, that's a broad stage. Those are, an Artanavritti means this, I want to get rid of material desires. I want to free myself from the impediments to my practice. So there are prayers about that. There are prayers of longing to attain the ideal. And there are prayers for getting rid of the things that are getting in the way of my attaining that ideal. So those latter prayers and poems would be more appropriate to the stage that you uh, speak about. They're focused on that. It's said that when one enters into bhakti and ecstasy, then prayers of a longing nature to attain the full face of that realm of ecstasy are more appropriate. Whereas in the practitioner stage, prayers to free oneself from impediments that are getting in the way of that are more of the focus. There's an overlapping, um, but at least the way you ask the question, then it should be obvious to, that, uh, you know, you, you, for example, what did Bhaktivinoda pray? Well, uh, for that matter, Bhaktivinoda Thakur has given a number of prayers for each of the stages that I, that I mentioned also. But there are many such prayers. Another question? Okay. Um, Sajan? Maharaj. In the Chaitanya Charitamrita, of course, it's stated that um, Sri Advaita Acharya is a combination of Mahavishnu and Sadhu Shiva. In the Nityananda Charitamrita, uh, it's in a footnote uh, by the translator or perhaps the editors, not in the, the actual text itself, but in the footnote, in uh, one of the footnotes, it, it says that Advaita Acharya is not only those two, but also Ujjwala Saka. Uh, one of the coward boys, Ujjwala, and also, also um, Samporna Major, which is like a star constellation of some type. Uh, I was wondering if you had any, any information at all about uh, either of those things. Well, uh, this is an interesting topic. The idea here being, of course, that, well, uh, Krishna in his Leela, he um, wanted to understand the measure of Radha's love, so he disappeared from her. And when you have something very valuable, then you lose it. The extent to which you appreciate it really is magnified. Mm -hmm. And so when he disappeared from her and he saw the measure of her love, he was like astounded. And he had to bow down to the, the love of Radha. And he said that, 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 that you're experiencing something that, that's beyond my experience. So it became a problem for him, kind of an existential crisis, if you will. But then he realized there's something in me that from her vantage point she sees that I don't see that makes her like that. I have to find out what that is. Or to do that, I have to step into her shoes and experience myself from her vantage point. It's complicated. So this caused a second Leela, if you will, an encore Leela, and that is the Leela of Chaitanya, who is Krishna pursuing the experience of himself that Radha experiences, right? Or Leela. So when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu appeared in the world in West Bengal, and many devotees of Krishna in that circle, if you will, of devotees began to think this Chaitanya must be Krishna himself because he's how deep is his experience and, and he can give it to other people. How can anybody give love of Krishna so easily other than Krishna himself? Maybe he's Krishna. But then they thought, well, if he's Krishna, Krishna's not alone because Krishna is the object of love 
and transcendence. And if there's an object of love, for there to be love, there has to be the love also. So the devotee is the love, the personification of the love, and Krishna is the object. And the two interacting, that we call bhakti rasa. So they thought, if he's Krishna, well, he wouldn't be alone. Where are his associates? And then they realized, it's us. We're his associates. We're in another leela now. Holy cow, they said. We are siddhas, and the leela is that we're sadhakas, practitioners. And then they would forget that and practice, and they would see that again and forget that and see that. This is leela. So this is Gorlila. So, so then the question is about who is who in Chaitanya's Leela in Krishna. If Chaitanya is Krishna, who is this one? Who is that one appearing in Chaitanya's Leela in the world, in the otherworldly Krishna Leela? If Krishna came, well, Ram must have come with him. Who, where's Ram? So then... Uh, and so on. If Krishna came, well, this, this friend might have must have come out. Where are they? So some devotees, this is a pretty insightful theological perspective, because many people say, well, I am Krishna. Hmm. And they say, she is Radha. We admit that. That's probably a problem. Hmm. But what about everybody else? There's Sridham, Sudama, the friends of Krishna. Krishna's cows, everything is a us to come here with him. It's a composite, right? So, so they, they, they tried to figure it out. And so they made what we would call through Shastra Yukti, through reasoning based on the sacred texts and the testimony of great devotees that oh, this one, we see this bhava in this person that corresponds with the bhava in Krishna's Leela. So he must be so-and-so, she must be so-and-so. So the point here I'm making is that there is um, there's room for more than one opinion on this. Any opinions that are given are not absolute, although the more there is a consensus around them, the more they uh, tend to be uh, or move in the direction of conclusive, absolute. So Kavi Karnapur, one of the famous poets, who probably most famous for his book about the who's who, of that. He himself gives different opinions. In the very beginning, he says, with the use of my intelligence, helping to draw from sacred texts and testimony of other devotees, I'm, this, this is the who's who. And he gives different options, right? So you're asking about one person, Adwaita, and um, I don't know where that footnote that you refer to uh, is derived from, uh, but Ujwal was a, was a friend of Krishna in his leela and an intimate friend. And um, uh, Kavi Karnapur does identify with, with friendship, mm -hmm. that type of love, fraternal love of Krishna in his book without specifying. Mm -hmm. However, there are other similar texts that identify Ujwala otherwise, mm -hmm. later, later texts. And um, it's also possible to draw a reasonable, con con come up with a reasonable conjecture based on Kavi Karnapur's text as to who Ujbal is uh, that would not identify him with, him with Advaita. So I don't know where that author, the translator got that idea. He should have documented that. I, I've never um, heard that before, so I can't give it a lot of um, I, I, I'd like to see more evidence to support that. Yes, Maharaj, thank you. Okay. Ujjbo Pijai. Maharaj, Atulananda Maharaj left a um, question in the chat for everyone and I could try to do it but it's in Spanish and I'd probably not do it very well so somebody would like to read the um, question in the chat 
Yes. Sí. Dameshwar. Well, um, it's not I a, think he refers to Dameshwar as the deity yeah. of Krishna. Yeah, there's, there's a famous deity of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in Navadvi, but it's said that the, the wife of Chaitanya, when he took sannyas and renounced family life and everything, that she, in separation from him, would chant the holy name of Krishna on her beads, her rosary. And after completing one time around, she would take one grain of rice from a pile of rice and move it here. And then when she was finished chanting, however many grains of rice she had on this side, she would cook with that. That's what she would eat. And then she would start chanting again. So she was deeply absorbed in love, in separation, which is said to make the heart grow fonder. Right? She was honoring his, the order of his sannyas and what he was doing for the world hmm, by not getting in the way of that and privately expressing her love for him, hmm, which, was, which was notable to the other devotees who just, they felt her separation. She is greatly honored. You know, she's a huge saint in our tradition, right? Um, and so when someone in Nadia proposed to make a deity, like carve a deity out of stone or wood of Chaitanya, to remember him in worship, then uh, they made a couple of versions and they brought the versions before Vishnu Priya, his wife. First one, she. Sorry, I mean, one of the verses that she pulled her sorry, show some shines, and that's him. So, they, so then they established that deity in a, in a still there, worshipped Dameshwar Mahaprabhu. So the question is how to worship him. You worship him like you would worship in Shaitanya in any other place. Um, Dameshwar means that that he presides over the Dham. Um, it shouldn't be something known to any worshiper of Chaitanya that he presides over Navadvip. There at that particular temple, they probably have certain rituals and whatnot, and maybe certain things that they do relative to the whole story that I just told and so forth. I'm not privy to those, but one could find those out. But the idea that Chaitanya presides over his abode, you know, is is non different than the idea that Krishna presides over his abode, and the abode or the sacred geography is the extension of his own self. So it itself is uh, worshipable. Those are some thoughts that come to mind. Other question? Yeah, um, Raghupad. Dhanavad Guru Maharaj. I was reading recently. Uh, we can't hear you. We heard you at first. Now we can. Yeah, we hear. heard you now. Okay, Dandavat Guru Maharaj. I was recently reading a book about Brahmin ladies in Bhuvaneshwar and uh, and their well-being and and so on. And it was a very interesting book because it uh, dealt with the life of these these ladies living in joint households. Uh, uh, a life that wasn't always very easy, but sometimes uh, um, fulfilling. And what was interesting in the book was that uh, the author judged their happiness or lack of happiness from their own perspective, um, from their own values. And, uh, and the values that they appreciated and that they strove for were things like uh, self-control, self-sacrifice, and so on, which made me think of, of devotees. And uh, I started to think, uh, this is where my question comes in, that could one reason for many of the kind of questions that we're grappling with in the Western world with regard to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, things like uh, 
Um, do I need to have a guru? Can I choose my bhava? Could it be that these questions arise from us starting out with different kind of values than the values that really informed the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition from the beginning? And if it is that we, with our values like hyper-individualism and autonomy and so on, that we have kind of the wrong values in a way, how can we go about changing something so kind of fundamentally socialized into us as values? Well, I think our, you're, you're, you're right in your conjecture that the values promoted in the uh, you know, Western civilization and are quite different. Um, and even different from the Western world of centuries past, which was um, more akin to what you'll find in, in India, for example, or, or, or in the East, because it was um, a worldview that had its, it, its center, a transcendent goal, even Europe and so on and so forth. But uh, with the, uh, you know, scientific revolution and the break of philosophy from thinking and reasoning about the implication of sacred texts to forgetting about sacred texts and just thinking and reasoning freely. Um, well, we've come up with other values and, um, and so forth. So, um, yeah, they're not uh, that particular worldview is certainly not conducive, and, it, and it, you know, it, it very well may bring up questions that, that you say that didn't come up um, in other times in the East where there was a different worldview and there were different um, values. So, I, I think that's true, no doubt. The harder question how to change our values and so forth. <laughs> Well, I think that those, uh, if you, you know, if you look carefully at our teachings, then they're, they're clearly um, underscored. What are the values? And, um, and by comparison, without going into detail, how vacuous the, uh, you know, the values of the modern world today are just like, you know, the idea that is that the more choices nowadays seem to be the more choices you have, the more free, free you will be. Well, it's, it's hardly the case, you know, it's just problematic. There are too many choices. You want to buy a vacuum, you know, you got like 10,000 of them on the internet at different times. You got to go through, take a week to figure out which one and just, you know, you just want to throw the computer out the window when you're done, vacuum it up. <laughs> so it's, it's just so problematic. Uh, but, um, you know, it's easier for us to come to that conclusion because we're at least in a school that underscores different values altogether and tries to bring those values into a world that has other values that we're constantly being bombarded with. So for that reason, we underscore the importance of Sadhu Sangha, which is going to completely always reiterate with new insight, the values that are core to a transcendent um, worldview that make those values that arise out of a non-transcendent worldview that try to make more out of nothing and call it realistic. You know, they try to make, they try to make consciousness out of unconsciousness and say, you know, consciousness is just a product of the brain. So they make experience, try to make experience out of non-experience and then accuse us of being magical in our thinking. That's completely, that's materialism that's completely magical to think that experiential reality will arise out of non-experiential stuff. You gotta be kidding. That's uh, so anyway. So I think that you know, we just need to hear those points, have that kind of association as much as possible, put ourselves in an environment that's supportive of really just basic fundamental values. I, I once read the people of Burma, I think it was Burma, were in one survey considered to be the most happy people. And the reason was because they were, they were, they completely embraced impermanence, the impermanence of all things, 
even while pursuing them, they, they just completely had embraced the idea, well, you're not being able to keep it. So as a result, they were, they were happy. Now that's just a very backwards way of thinking from, from a modern uh, perspective. So, but, but you know, the, your question about questions that arise within our tradition or any Eastern tradition in the modern uh, mindset, context of the modern mindset are often questions that, that wouldn't arise and therefore aren't addressed in the, in the, in the texts and so forth written thousands of years ago. Um, and the, so the question is, should we address them or should we just address that try to change your, your worldview and those, those questions will go, will, will go away. Um, we can try to address them to some extent, but you know, the, the, the rational mind of the West just has got a huge appetite and the Bhagavatam itself tells us, you know, like, yeah, that's a, the mind, the, the, the intellect is more avaricious than the tongue, if you will. And, it, it, and we see that in Western society it just wants to just, you know, take everything and think about it, think about it and think about it. And, um, and um, that is, that itself is a disease. It's hard. It's easier to understand, well, I should control my tongue or my genital. Can't just go jump on somebody in the mall because I think she looks good, you know? There has to be some limitations here, but limit, to limit the intellect, the more I, the mind is more subtle than the senses. Intellect is more subtle than the mind. Mind may say, I like this. Intellect may say, but it's not good for you. Whispering, it's not good for you. It's more subtle. So it's more closer to myself it's more if i say you know you look you look overweight you may say so what and if i say you're stupid you might want to fight with me you know that yeah that's getting too close you know so we identify with with our ourself with our intellect more than we do with our senses and gross body so to speak um but the teaching is too that intellect mind senses that uh Lust has a seating place in all of them. They want satisfaction. They want satisfaction and they can't be satisfied. And so you have to turn them off. They have to be turned off. Um, they have to be fed instead a, a good diet of uh, transcendent uh, advice, which puts them in their place. You have to put the intellect in its place. It has a place, it's useful. We don't throw it out, we use it. We have to understand its limitations. That's why I speak of practices that are not irrational, but they pick up where reasoning leaves off. It's reasonable to chant, but it will take you to a place that you can't go by your reason alone. So, I mean, it's, I mean, just to say you don't need to be educated, for example, that would be like a terrible idea. It is to some extent in the modern world, but it's a statement that another point of view said, no, it makes some sense, you know. Some things you gotta know, some basic things. So yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, what you're asking is, is, is the modern world and culture a problem for spiritual practice? And the answer is, is clearly yes, it is. We can't just recreate an old world or, you know, entirely different culture, but we could, we can we can try to modify it in such a way that that we can turn you know problems into, into part part of the solution. We have to learn to dance in the rain, I think. So um, yeah, we're at a, at the end of the questioning period. About all I can do with that. Good question. What was the what was what was the group of people you're reading about? I didn't hear that part. Uh, it's it's a book by uh, an anthropologist called Usha Menon. And she's writing about uh, uh, Brahmin ladies in Bhuvaneshwar in, in Odisha. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, much to learn from them, I would say, you know, that mm -hmm. their values and that's, you know, better college to go to, better get a degree from there. Mm -hmm. What makes them happy, mm -hmm. for example, the things that you mentioned. Um, I mean, just common sense, if you look at it very clearly, they're going to make you a lot more happy than many of the things that are on your mind that you think if you get, your life will be better. Hmm? 
in the end, what can I say? You can only keep that which you've given away with love. That's all you can keep. Try to do that. And you have something, then you really have something. Tendency to give. That's the most you can get. Right. Okay, nice to talk with you all. Thank you so much, Kamaraj. And everybody stand, I'm just gonna make a quick announcement. Jai. Okay, Hi. Um. Okay, I know the class schedule was a little confusing and um, from last week, it's been clarified. It's, um, so this is really simple. I'm just gonna give you the days that Gurmaraj is giving class um, this coming week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And that's at 12.30 Eastern Standard Time. And it's on the Brahma Vimohanila and Brahma Stuti. And then he'll be giving the Sunday question and answer. Padmanava Swami is giving class Monday, Tuesday, Friday, and Saturday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And on Thursday, at the same time, question and answers. So a lot of nectar out there. I hope everybody's been able to at least follow the, you know, some of the classes on iTunes or on YouTube. Um, wonderful classes um, from both of our very wonderful gurus. So, thank you all for joining the call today, and we'll look forward to seeing everybody back here next Sunday, um, and Radhana will be hosting next week. Okay, Jai, Hare Krishna, Haribo.